0: Welcome to ASRM today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I am Jeffrey Hayes. It's National Endometriosis Awareness Month, and on the show today to discuss endometriosis is ASRM President Dr. Hugh Taylor. Dr. Taylor is Anita O'Keefe Young, Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences, and Professor of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology the chair of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences at the Yale School of Medicine and chief of obstetrics and gynecology, Yale New Haven Hospital. Dr. Taylor, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks, Jeff. Good to see you.
0: Good to see you as well. So we're we're talking about endometriosis today. What started you on the path to making endometriosis a focus of your research?
1: Well, it was patient-driven. I mean, it's one of the most frustrating things that we experience in reproductive endocrinology and fertility. Uh, It's a disease where we haven't made a lot of progress in a long time that we don't understand well and that we need to understand better if we're going to come up with new solutions. Uh, A very, very common disease and something that I feel has been overlooked and and not um, given the same sort of uh, high quality investigation that other diseases have gotten. And it's so debilitating to our patients at times that it deserves more attention.
0: Your research focuses on endometriosis as a systemic disease. Uh, Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, a lot of our research these days is showing that endometriosis isn't confined to those small few blue dots in the pelvis that we see so commonly, that there are whole body effects of endometriosis. And I think this helps us to understand the totality of the disease better and what our patients are going through, the myriad of complaints that our patients come in seeking answers for. If we understand the entirety of endometriosis, I think we can better comprehend uh, the uh, issues our patients are having, better diagnose the disease, um, and and, and lead to better treatments as well. Uh, Some of the work we've done recently has shown multiple different whole body effects. We've shown that there are stem cells that are migrating throughout the body, uh, from endometriosis that can implant in other areas. We've shown that there are microRNAs that come from endometriosis. These microRNAs are small RNA molecules that can influence gene expression in uh, cells in different organs outside of the uh, reproductive tract. So, this helps to explain why we see so many different manifestations of this disease. For example, we know that, on average, women with endometriosis have a lower BMI. They're thinner than women um, without endometriosis. Um, one of the reasons for that is that we see a different metabolic phenotype. that in mice we can, by creating endometriosis, we can actually cause them to lose weight. We look at their liver, and we see that the, many of the enzymes that regulate metabolism are different. We look in the fat cells, and we see that many of the fat cells have different patterns of gene expression, again, that would lead to weight loss. So there's a surprising metabolic phenotype in endometriosis that wasn't well understood. Just a few years ago, I had people saying uh, that being thin is a risk factor for endometriosis. No, it's exactly the other way around endometriosis changes your metabolism, causes weight loss. Um, So it helps us to understand some of what our patients are going through. Another thing that we see um, commonly in women with endometriosis is uh, depression and anxiety. On average, women with uh, endometriosis have a higher incidence of these conditions. And in mice, mouse models, we can prove that it's cause and effect. We create endometriosis in mice. We look at their brains. They're different. They're different electrophysiology, different gene expression. And the endometriosis induces anxiety and depression in these mice. So these are consequences of the disease. This is a disease that's hard to understand, and some physicians get frustrated trying to treat endometriosis because of all these manifestations, we really need to realize that this is part of the disease and treating the disease may help alleviate all of these types of problems. We focus on pain and infertility, which are the uh, pain is often the most devastating manifestation of disease and deserves to be our primary focus, but we shouldn't be distracted by all of these other symptomatology that may very well be related to the endometriosis infertility again is another common uh, problem associated with endometriosis and we need to find better ways to treat endometriosis related infertility
0: yeah I was going to ask because because you're pointing out here things about you know one metabolic issues to mental health issues. Um, And traditionally it's been, you know, more surgery based, you know, to, to, to just go in and, and. Basically, for 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 lack better to cut out the problem, uh, but your 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 research is indicating so much more. What medicines have, have there been trials of different types of medicines or different therapeutics that you have found in your research that you can that you can share with us?
1: Yeah, I think you make a very important point. There'll always be a role for surgery and endometriosis, but I think we can do a lot better job diagnosing and treating endometriosis earlier on. These diffuse symptoms we talk about are often red herrings that distract us from focusing on the diagnosis of endometriosis. And I think when somebody has cyclic pelvic pain that's progressive in nature, that they have dysmenorrhea uh, initially that gets worse and may occur at times outside of the uh, menses, that when somebody has that progressive dysmenorrhea, cyclic pelvic pain, that's usually endometriosis. Um, and we can make a presumptive clinical diagnosis of endometriosis and begin medical therapy. Um, So uh, there's a reason that Uh, endometriosis is probably underdiagnosed and the diagnosis is delayed by an average of about 10 years worldwide is because we don't recognize it soon enough, um, that traditionally we've required surgery to even diagnose endometriosis. But I think in, in reality, most people in their practices will treat someone with cyclic pelvic pain with an oral contraceptive. And I think we should, and I think we shouldn't be afraid to call that endometriosis. I think we can make that diagnosis Clinically. Now, of course, oral contraceptives are a great first line therapy. They work for many women. However, they don't work for everyone. Some of our work and the work of others has shown that endometriosis can either be initially or become resistant to progestins. Uh, At least one mechanism is by decreasing the level of progesterone receptor in the endometriosis. So we can start to identify who is. Uh, going to respond to progestins and who are not, but up to about a third of women will not respond to progestins, and others may have significant progestin-related side effects, that may be better than the pain, but still, this may not be the optimal drug and the optimal answer for, for patients. When someone fails an oral contraceptive, sometimes we can try a higher dose of progestin, but certainly if they're having progestin related side effects, bloating, breast tenderness, uh, mood changes, the higher dose of progestin is not the best route to go. It's an alternative for those who uh, have not had those type of side effects. The other medication we traditionally would use was uh, androgens danazol but uh, unfortunately, that has side effects that make most of my patients not want to consider that route of therapy. Uh, But the one thing that we find constant is that endometriosis is always estrogen dependent. And lowering estrogen levels is an effective way to treat all endometriosis, even when it's progestin resistant. Traditionally, that meant injectable uh, GnRH agonists like luprolide Um, which were a big burden because they were injectable. uh, They cause a profound suppression of estrogen to near zero um, and uh, had multiple different uh, side effects that include menopausal side effects like vasomotor symptoms, uh, but also uh, potential for bone loss. These days with the development of the GnRH antagonists we now have new drugs that will lower estrogen levels but not quite to the same level as the luprolide the GnRH antagonists are oral they're rapidly effective with the old agonists, we needed to go through a flare effect initially, where initially it was stimulation of the receptor, and that stimulation was required to get that desensitization, that profound suppression. It was an all-or-none response. These days with the GnRH antagonists, we can partially block the receptor, we can titrate the dose, we can customize an individualized therapy to patients' needs. Some patients don't need you to fully suppress their estrogen uh, to treat their endometriosis. Um, And different doses of GnRH antagonists will allow us to personalize therapy for patients. Many of them don't need their estrogen suppressed to the level that will give them menopausal symptoms yet may get very good control of their endometriosis. Right now, there's one of these GnRH antagonists available in two different doses. The lower dose gives you partial suppression of your estrogen level, very minimal side effects and effective in treating endometriosis, and a higher dose that's given twice a day that results in a more profound suppression of estradiol, not quite to the level of that we saw with the old uh, GnRH agonists, but more effective in treating the more severe uh, cases of endometriosis. So we have a whole range of uh, drugs in our armamentarium now, Uh, including much easier and gentler ways of suppressing estradiol uh, without the same significant side effects that we're seeing in the past with lupraline. Also in development, there are two additional GnRH antagonists that should be on the market sometime uh, soon that will have very similar properties.
0: I'm speaking today with ASRM president, Dr. Hugh Taylor, about endometriosis. For more on this and other information on infertility, as always, please visit our website, www.asrm.org, and also check our show notes for more information as well. Dr. Taylor, you were just talking about how the future will will need disease-specific non-hormonal treatments. that that can be used with with infertility patients. So I wanna ask you, you are an advocate for personalized medicine uh, in endometriosis. Why do you think that that's going to be the next level?
1: Right now, all the therapies we have prevent pregnancy or should not be used during pregnancy. Uh, Lowering estrogen levels or giving progestins at the wrong time in the cycle is certainly not something that's conducive to establishment of pregnancy. We don't have any way to treat infertile patients with endometriosis right now other than surgery to remove it, but even that isn't a very effective treatment. The number needed to treat is quite high. Um, uh, We move on to in vitro fertilization, which is quite effective in treating um, endometriosis, but it's uh, not directly, it, it's treating the infertility, but it's not directly treating the endometriosis per se. It's overcoming the endometriosis and allowing one to conceive. But wouldn't it be nice if we could get medications that would treat the endometriosis, decrease the infertility, um, and for that we really need non-hormonal therapies. Some of the research we've been work, working on and over the past few years is understanding better the pathophysiology of endometriosis understanding the molecular mechanisms that underlie endometriosis so we can target them specifically. We've uh, used, um, in animal models, several different molecules, for example, blocking some of the microRNAs that I mentioned earlier that are aberrant in endometriosis. We can shrink lesions with these type of targeted specific non-hormonal therapies. And I believe that within a few years, we will have non-hormonal therapies Uh, that can be taken and used by someone trying to conceive um, that will allow us to treat endometriosis-related infertility. Um, That's something we really don't have uh, the ability to do right now. Uh, Again, IVF is very effective in uh, helping women with infertility um, and uh, endometriosis. Uh, However, it doesn't really treat the underlying cause, the endometriosis. It would be nice if we could eliminate that. Not only uh, would allow some women to conceive without IVF, uh, but also would probably improve pregnancy rates in IVF uh, with women with, women with endometriosis.
0: Well, we certainly appreciate your time and, and being able to come on today, your expertise uh, and, and your, just your overall passion uh, uh, for the, this specific topic here at National Endometriosis uh, Awareness Month. I've been speaking today with president of ASRM, Dr. Hugh Taylor, and he has uh, joined us and we've been having a chat about endometriosis. Uh, Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for being able to come on and I hope we can have you on again soon.
1: Thank you very much, Jeff. Enjoyed uh, speaking with you and appreciate you recognizing Endometriosis Month.
0: I'm Jeffrey Hayes and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today Series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.